Hello and welcome to the Gentleman's Journal podcast, a fortnightly interview series all about success, modern business and the lives of entrepreneurs. I'm Joe Bulmore, I'll be your host for the day and I'm joined this afternoon by Joe Malone, CBE. Joe, as you know, is the nation's favourite perfumer. She founded Joe Malone London, her first ever brand, when she was just 21 from a tiny flat in London before selling it a few years later to Estee Lauder for undisclosed millions. She now runs Joe Loves, a more experimental and personal perfume brand that takes its inspiration from her own life and memories. Today, Joe tells us about synesthesia, the incredibly rare neurological condition that gives her a superpowered nose, how she had to learn to sell at just seven years old to put food on the family's table, and why setting up her second business was in fact so much harder than the first. But before we begin, I'd love to tell you about the Clubhouse, a new kind of private members club brought to you by Gentleman's Journal. Clubhouse members get two bumper issues of Gentleman's Journal magazine delivered straight to their door, full of all those invaluable insights from the worlds of entrepreneurship, style, politics and culture that you'd expect, as well as exclusive deals with a range of partner brands, restaurants and hotels. Not to mention some lovely invitations to some very exciting events across the year. In fact, our podcast listeners, which is you, now get 20% off a Clubhouse annual membership meaning you'll get the full Gentleman's Journal experience for just under £48 a year, which sounds a bit like a bargain to me. Just enter the code POD20 at thegentlemansjournal.com slash club. That's P-O-D-20 at thegentlemansjournal.com slash club. Right, on with the podcast. It's wonderful to have you um, on the podcast, which, is, as you know, is kind of our interview series with entrepreneurs. And your entrepreneurial story is is one of the most interesting I've read in a while. And it starts, you were very young when you started having these kind of impulses, for want of a better word. Well, I, it was, I think a lot of entrepreneurs start out just to survive. And that yeah. and mine was survival. I think you're going to see a huge wave, by the way, right at this moment in time, because, we're, you know, that survival instinct kicks in. And so I didn't look at myself as an entrepreneur or a shopkeeper or anything. I just did what we needed to do to survive as a family. And that responsibility came when I was very young. What did you want to be when you were growing up? (laughs) Um, I I I don't know what I wanted to be. I I would have loved to have been a hairdresser um, because hairdressers, for me, always sit. And I always have a problem with my hair anyway. Um, And I love animals. So, you know, but I didn't have any education. So I didn't really think that I had a a right to choose a career if, you, if it you know if that makes any sense um yeah. because i didn't have the education i didn't finish school so it was really just getting you know my first job wasn't a flower shop and i think whatever i've done in my life though i've really loved that's the key i've really mm-hmm. thrown myself in a hundred percent whether it was working in the little health shop on a saturday and breaking the boxes up you know whatever i did i did with a hundred percent gusto um and that's served me well all however many years of my life. <laughs> and you used to sell your father's artwork at, at a market yeah. when you were a kid. What, what, what kind of sales tactics did you employ at that age? <laughs> the same one that I do now, really. Um, I loved that time. So he and I was, I must have, I was about seven, eight when I would go to the markets with him. And I adored my father. He was this Picasso character, without a doubt, in every sense of the word. But he was so creative. But he would paint the pictures and we would, as we would walk out the door at sort of 5.36 on a Saturday morning, 
my mum would say to me, Joe, there's no money and there's nothing in the fridge. Wow. If you don't bring some money back, we don't eat. And I mean, it really, it really was as clear cut as that. So this little kid would get into the back of the van and with all the paintings, and we'd get to the market, and we'd pitch our stall because you had to, you know, you had to pitch for your stall every week. You didn't get the same one. And once it was all set up, I would send my dad off to go and get bacon sandwiches and a cup of tea. And I knew that I had at least 40 minutes to sell the first painting. And I would. I'd often do it. And I'd tell the story. I'd tell the story of the painting. You know, when I think about it, you know, selling a painting is not an easy thing. Much easier to sell T-shirts or a set of saucepans or uh, something. But I would, I would also just wander around the market and all of the traders knew me. And I would watch them and I loved the man who would do a set of saucepans and tea towels and then a food mixer and go, okay, tenner, who wants it? And like bundles. Yeah. And I, I kind of learned a lot from other people and would take it back to our stall and say to my dad, well, okay, let's move all the paintings around halfway through the day. And yeah. what that does to the consumer is as the people walking through the marketplace and they saw the picture they loved, when they walked back again, they then thought the picture that they loved had gone. In fact, it hadn't it had moved somewhere else, but okay. it, it produces this sort of sense of hunger. And that came very naturally and very instinctively to me. So my, uh, my dad was a terrible, terrible businessman. So if he didn't like the look of someone, he wouldn't sell them the picture. And okay. in the back of my head is like, we have to sell this picture, dad. Uh, if yeah. we had a good day, we would stop and get a Chinese food at the end of the day. And I would sit there and um, be, feel really proud of myself. Of course. You sound like a very confident kid. I don't think at 11 I would have had the guts to do anything like that. I was eight. You were eight? Um, I was eight. I was, in, the, wow. in the beginning, I was seven, eight. And then I don't think I was confident. No, I was, I was a very shy child. But I, I had this old head on young shoulders. I knew, I knew that we had to earn some money to eat. It was as simple yeah. as that. It wasn't that I was confident or, uh, on the contrary, I would say, I was a very insular. I liked my own space. I loved reading. Um, although I struggled with reading because of dyslexia. But no, I don't think I was confident. But I thought I would kind of immerse myself in this world of storytelling. And I, I still do that today. I mean, I think that's probably been my secret to where I am. And I live in this world of my imagination. And I create it. I'm able to create it very easily. So I think that was probably, you know, what helped me to sell the paintings. And, yeah. and then on the Sunday, I was the magician's assistant. So I was, <laughs> he was the magician. He was part of the magic circle. And then I would have to put on a, you know, a, a little skirt and look after the rabbits and the doves as he was doing his magic tricks. So you know all the tricks, literally all the tricks. I really do. And I would never, never tell. But you'd be thrown out of the magic circle. Well, I wasn't part of the magic circle. He was. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm sure they'd have a thing or two to say, though. So have you always had an exceptional sense of smell? Have you, have you, have you always realised that you perceive smell differently to other people, even then? Uh, no, 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 I didn't. I thought everybody could smell like I could smell. And how can you smell? Well, look, it's the most natural thing. It's like asking, asking you, you know, how do you smell? <laughs> it's <laughs> your senses, is your, your senses, aren't they? And so I thought everybody could smell when the dog was sick. I remember the very first time I realised something was very unique about my sense of smell was when I could smell the dog was sick. We had a golden Labrador and I smelt her paws in the back of her ears. And I said, mum, the dog is sick. And she said, don't be ridiculous. The dog's fine. 24 hours later, the dog was rushed to the vets. Oh my God. I could smell when it was going to rain. I could smell when we were making face creams, when the oil was too hot. I could smell things that a lot of people couldn't smell. 
And wow. I started I started to realize that that was a sense that I should trust. Follow your nose. <laughs> My nickname in the house is Bloodhound. And, okay. uh, and how did you get into cosmetics then? How do we how do we get there? So my mum worked for an, a woman called the Countess Labati, and uh, she was she was like another very iconic figure in my life. And she taught me, you know, whereas my dad taught me one thing, she really did teach me how to make my first face cream. And I would go up with my mum at the weekends and holidays and and spend time with Madame Labati. Who was she was six foot two. She wore a long white lab coat. She had fishnet tights blood red lipstick in her <laughs> 80s loved yoga and she was she was Helen Mirren yeah an older yeah. Helen Mirren without a doubt and she was uh, unfortunately towards the end of her life she developed Alzheimer's but she was my best friend for a very very long time and, and I would sit in the laboratories with her and I would watch what she did and she was a brilliant woman and one day she said to me Joe I, I she had a very deep 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 voice um by the way her real name was Doris Hilda Baker <laughs> But she, uh, she'd married a count and I, I, she was just the most wonderful, wonderful human being. And she said to me, can you make this face cream? And I'd watched her for weeks and weeks and I mimicked her because I am a, a big mimic. That's how I kind of learn. And I produced the face mask, which I could make for you right now if I had the ingredients in front of me. And, uh, and that was the beginning. I knew, I knew within me that there was something really powerful that I had just done. Because I had felt stupid. I was told I was stupid and lazy at school because of dyslexia. And suddenly yeah. when I made that face cream, it gave me value. And I felt valued by her, but I felt value in myself. And that was, I think, the moment that I realized that I had something and no one could take it away from me. And who were your early customers? There was a time when you were running the operation out of a, a flat in Chelsea. Is that right? Well, that I was, I was just married and uh, you know from that from that little girl I developed uh, I built a business a skincare business I had 12 women then 20 then 50 then 100 and um, I would make I'd still make all the face creams by hand and sit in my little kitchen with my marigolds on a mask on and kitchen roll everywhere and I would hand pour and every day I would sell every pot of face cream that I made I would sell and it became a thriving business and so that little apartment in Chelsea that we started from uh, which I still own today. I can't bear to part from it because it reminds me of my roots. And um, I used to make the face creams. And, and that's, that was another kind of, a, of those real turning points. And I decided that I would make some body lotions to use within the face treatments. And the body lotion I had to create the fragrance for. And that's how the fragrance gets started. What was the first fragrance there? The first one I made was, a, I think it was either a violet or a strawberry. Well, so it, it, I mean, they were very... Um, I was just so young and new into into the fragrance kind yeah. of world. And, and then the first one that really kicked in was nutmeg and ginger. So when I created that one, that was that was the turning point, I think, where people, where I had no training, and I really didn't. You know, all these amazing perfumers that trained for years and years, and there I was, and I could just naturally lock pieces of uh, notes together. And, yeah. you know, I could smell it in my head way before my nose could smell it. Incredible. And so, yeah, I, I don't know where that came from. That was just a, a little golden gift, wasn't it? Yeah. And you were working then with Gary, of course, your husband. Yes. It's, it's a famously difficult thing to do, isn't it? Mixing family and business. Not for us. It's really right. funny. Not for us at all. I think it's, I mean, we've been married a very, very long time. 
and we've built two businesses together and saved marriage and a best I mean he's my best friend he really is and I wouldn't like to speak for him but I would like to think I was his best friend <laughs> <laughs> so you just made it work listen we've had real humdingers like every family but I think Gary is very good at one side of the business and I'm very good at the other. And together, we're a really powerful, very powerful team. We've disagreed in business. I could count on one hand how many times we've disagreed with certain things. And, and one of us will always back down in that situation. Yeah. Um, and actually, I've probably, in, from a business perspective, I've backed down one, many more times than he has because he's often the right, you know, right. And I'm dealing with business from an emotional perspective and yeah. he's thinking with his head. So. But from a creative, I've never backed down. He's always backed down because that's the emotional side of the business and the creation of the product. So we've had so many adventures together. We've learned so many things. And it's funny. He said to me, we were sitting outside having a glass of wine the other night, and he just looked at me and he said, we have to enjoy our life much, much more when we come out of this. And, and it was really funny. I felt the same thing. Yeah. I think a lot of people are thinking that now. I think it's quite an interesting time to reflect on, on the good times. Also, they're going to come again. I don't, I don't um, you know, I think people must remember that I don't think life is going to go back to normal for a very, as we knew it, for a very long time. But you know what? We might find things here that are really precious that we wouldn't have found otherwise. Time with our families. I mean, I'm, my son came home from university. And when am I ever going to get one month, two months, three months living as we did when he was much younger yeah. ever again? Um I'm sure he thinks about it very differently, but yeah. it's we 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 sit and have a conversation every breakfast, every lunch, every dinner, and we laugh. We laugh more times than we cry in this house, which is wonderful. But you know, there's just so many things, and, and even how we work. You know, I don't I don't necessarily want to go back to the way we worked before. You no. know, this has really opened my mind up to so many different things. So. Um, yeah, I think there's. I think there's a lot to learn. There's a lot of tears, though. You know, people who are losing loved ones and, yeah. and the fear. That bit has really uh, has really affected me. How some people have to live in in very different circumstances, um, but also the good of people. I mean, look, look what we're seeing. The very best that people can be working together. And uh, yeah, I hope we hold on to that. What does your son think about it all? Obviously, if he's at university, he's about to enter a job market that looks very different than it might have done 18 months ago. Is he positive? Is he... Well, he's only just gone to uni. So okay, so he's got a little bit, yeah. We, we were actually talking about this. I think the young people who are doing their O's and A's at the minute, I feel, we feel heartbroken for them. Yeah. Because especially the at uh, this particular moment in time, I really feel that that generation really do need more, that we do need to help them because it's mm. such a tough, tough time. For him, he's only just gone into uni. So by the time he comes out the other end, this will be something that he remembers. But, I mean, he's upstairs right now um, doing his class. And today is a long day. He goes from 2 to 2 in the morning doing classes because wow. he's at university in America. He works hard. He's just got all his grades through, straight A's again. We had a little celebration dinner last night to <laughs> say congratulations. So, yeah, it's, it's a different mindset. It really is. And you do yeah. – and you have to realise that people have bad days – and you have to let those bad days be in that day. And we have a saying in our family, it's, it's turn the page, it's a new day. Whatever happens yesterday, we, it happened yesterday. We're not going to bring it into today. Brilliant. I think that's good in a crisis or, or at any time, really. Yeah. So let's go back to 
your first shot when it first all started become to become real in 1994 what do you remember of the first day you opened the doors <laughs> um i remember somebody offering me a million pounds to sell the company <laughs> million dollars well that sounds memorable <laughs> it was million dollars i could do you know something if i saw that man again i would recognize him in a shot um from who was he uh, he was sent by a client okay. said, from america and he what he, he was american um pinstripe suit walked in and had a cigar in his mouth at sort of 10 o'clock in the morning i mean it was very it was either a setup or it was the real thing and i think i think it was the real thing anyway he walked in and he said are, are you joe and i said yes he said i i've been sent by my clients uh from america i have a an offer for you and gas and i were still sleeping on a piece of blue foam that we bought from home base in our apartment mm. and we we had put every single penny that we had into this shop and he said um I've been sent to offer you uh, to, to sell your company today for a million dollars, but you have to walk away. Now we've been trading for a while and I just sensed that I was a threat to somebody. I didn't know who. And I looked at him and I just thought, if we sold today for a million, I could go out and buy Gary and I a bed. That was the first thing I thought of because we hadn't slept. We had slept on a piece of foam on the floor for nearly five years. And then that little voice in my head said, if you do that, you're going to rob yourself of a huge adventure. And yeah. so I looked at him and I said, no, thank you. And he walked away. And as, I, as he walked away, I, I saw sort of notes falling from him thinking, <laughs> oh, well, you know, shall I chase him up the road and say I've changed my mind? But I'm glad I didn't because within five years I had sold the first sale order. Uh, yeah, and, cool. And uh, much more than a million. Yeah. We often hear, hear now that the, the kind of the high street is under threat especially at this moment. But what was it that you managed to capture in your shops uh, at the beginning, do you think? Um, same thing that we need now, theatre and circus, great product, passion, integrity, inspiration, innovation, no different. I, I don't think shopkeeping has changed through time. People's desires change, but actually the heartbeat of a shopkeeper never really moves from, from that. It's a passion for what they do, a passion for the service and the consumer, and you know shopkeepers are storytellers that's really what we what we do we tell you yeah. stories in a food shop we're telling you a story for your you know for sense of taste in fashion you are you know it's that's how i see it and i break it down what did i do differently um i approached the industry so now i hear stories of, of everyone that said oh my god everyone was looking at you you were literally changing our industry moment by moment and i think i was but i was so involved and ingrained and looking at my business i didn't look up once i didn't look yeah. up to see what other people were doing i just continued to do what i believed in and i still i run joe loves like that now as well um cool. it, you know i'm not i'm not somebody that is threatened by other people's success because i believe success breeds success it's it's a healthy thing to be you know competitive but but going back to your, your first point about the high street now i think when we come out of lockdown I think we're not going to recognize the high street that we left a few months right. ago and heartbreaking because you know what these businesses are people's lives and livelihoods and yeah. uh you know unprecedented times but i do think there'll be an emerging market of young businesses that will start you can see fresh shoots of that happening but the established brands have found it much harder to uh, be agile and think differently so it's a it's a very tough time but i think we need to help each other i mean my my collaboration with, with zara mm. uh, has been such an eye-opener to me 
and it's enabled me to be both small and large at the same time and learn from both. Uh, yeah. And I think uh, collaborations could be part of the answer coming out of this. Which shops do you walk into now, or well, used to walk into, and think that they were kind of ahead of the game or, or changing the way that people sell things? Oh, what a lovely question. Uh, Smithsons definitely yeah. were ahead of the game. I remember the first time walking in there. Um, Zara are definitely ahead of the game. You know, when we, I mean, I, I used to go every Friday and buy myself something from Zara for, you know, to wear for the weekend. Uh, I think Zara are definitely a brand that really broke the mold and bought fast moving fashion at a such and even now i mean now that i work with them i see how they work and they can adapt and change and twist even though they're vast across the world so then i have my who else do i have my i have my someone like monica i can never say the name second name Viandi, the jewelers Veneda. is it Veneda? Veneda. that's it that's it um <laughs> that's my dyslexia kicking in monica Veneda. Uh, i love what she does i love the fact that she bought you know, creative uh, pieces to the market and how she packaged it. Love them. What else? I love Whole Foods. I love what Whole Foods um, yeah. the supermarket bought. Uh, I mean, just so many brands and, and small brands as well that have been so interesting. And I've seen, you know, that creativity and that entrepreneurial spirit rise up. So let's go back quickly to the acquisition that you mentioned, the Estee Lauder purchase. How did your life change after that? Was it for better or for worse, do you think? Oh, no, for better. Absolutely. I mean, listen, if I could go back in my life and change something, I wouldn't change that. Not for a second. Not okay. who I sold to. Not even for how much. I really wouldn't. Because I think regrets, and, and when you look back and think, oh, I could have got more. You know what? That's not healthy. No. That's not great. It changed my life, but it didn't change my life in a funny sort of way. I still, Gary and I were still these young kids, but we... You know, instead of sitting the back of the bus, I was sitting in a nice, comfortable seat on a plane and we would travel. And and he and I have both, and actually the three of us as a family, we really enjoy life. We really enjoy whatever it is that we do. And we don't have to be, we don't have to be sitting in a smart seat. But I have to say that first time traveling business class, I just, I thought I'd died and gone to heaven. It was just like everything. I was like a child, seat going backwards and forwards, glass of wine at lunch. I loved it. Um, yeah. And to be honest, still do. So that side, I worked. The thing that really was amazing was the people I worked with, the chemist I met. Uh, Joe, sitting in the laboratories with Joe Gubernick, who was uh, who created helped create Clinique and had worked with Estee Lauder and Evelyn Lauder, and was a remarkably clever man. I learned a lot, um, and I loved Leonard. Absolutely, I still do love Leonard Lauder. What a an amazing, incredible. Um, game changer of our industry yeah. so i i didn't have one regret not one was it was it a brutal process a big conglomerate like that coming after a, a small brand Did they have armies of lawyers and, and were there difficult decisions and things no no there, there weren't i wasn't that keen on their lawyer i've got to be honest <laughs> <laughs> he was um i didn't like him at all not at all not because it was their lawyer but i found him quite pushy uh but he was a he was in new york you know um yeah. but there wasn't there wasn't i think when you when you want to strike a deal with two people uh, whether it's an acquisition or a collaboration or a partnership you know you've got to have a win-win situation and if you don't have that that's when it normally falls apart yeah 
we both came to the table. So Leonard and I sat and we agreed that this was in principle, this was what we both wanted for our businesses and for our lives. And from that, all of that, all of it came together. There was a there was negotiation backwards and forwards. I mean, my husband is one of the greatest negotiators in the world. So he did that side of things. I would have been happy to shake hands, sign a piece of paper that afternoon at the kitchen table and say, deal's done. You know, that's, that is who I am in, in many respects. But real life isn't like that. So it wasn't tough. It wasn't hard. It wasn't, um, it was actually quite a, a, an easy process as, as acquisitions go. And I think the world now needs to just ease up. And we are going to have to realize, you know what, please, let, let's just, if this is what we both want, let's move forward with it. Let's not have years of negotiation because often that's when negotiations fall apart, when people yeah. have got, no, they're asking for, or when the person selling gets to that point where you, you have a deal and then they suddenly say, no, I want a bit more. You know what, that doesn't sit right with me. It no. really doesn't. Uh, if you shook hands on something and you've agreed it, move on because far better you have a smaller slice of a bigger cake than you have a big slice of nothing. Yeah. And the only people that seem to benefit in those prolonged scenarios are the lawyers, really, who kind of have a vested interest to keep it rolling on. Not to badmouth lawyers for the second time, really, <laughs> but yeah. Well, I have to say, my lawyer's been my lawyer and my friend for nearly uh, 25 years. So, yeah. <laughs> um, both my bank manager and my lawyer are two wonderful dear friends who I literally adore. So I've got nothing bad to say about them. <laughs> wonderful. Was it an odd decision to leave your name behind, or was it was it difficult? Did it feel like you were leaving part of yourself? There's so many mixed emotions here that I had. So yeah. I had fought cancer. So. You know, I didn't. I didn't suddenly wake up one day and think to myself, "Okay, I, I want out." There was nobody fell out. There was no argument. But I had spent a year fighting for my life. My son was tiny at the time. He was uh, just uh, he was hadn't even gone to school. And I thought the cancer was going to come back. And I didn't want to be traveling the world when I could have spent time with my my son and and my husband. So that was one of the motivations. And also the year out fighting cancer, I had. I'd lost part of myself. Now, when I look back at it in hindsight, I can see exactly what had happened. But I panicked. I panicked in the situation where I thought, my God, if I can't smell, I can't create fragrance. And who am I going to be? And also, I'd lost a sense of um, identity within the business. And of yeah. course, in a year, you know, they, they needed to move on. They had to move on. They couldn't stay, you know, stuck in time. So I remember thinking, it's time for me to move on. You know what? I, I want that. I didn't want to cause any harm to that business. And I didn't want to see what I had gone through and my own anxiety and, and weakness affect the business. And so that, that is why I left. That is why I walked away. So I handed in my resignation to Leonard first and he tried to change my mind and then other people tried to. And I was like, no, 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 no. This is the right decision for me. And of course, then signed the deal. Everything was done. And then I got cold feet and then I realized I'd made a mistake and it was too late to change it. So that last seven days of being um, in the business, I cried every night. I knew I'd made the biggest mistake of my life and I couldn't change it. And on that last day of turning the key in the lock in Sloan Street, I put yeah. the bottles on the shelf for the last time and I walked away and I just sobbed and sobbed and I'd signed a lockout deal. So yeah. 
And at that at that time, I never I never thought fragrance would ever come back into my life. I um, didn't know what I was going to do, and I walked away. And I just I, I spent five years in a very dark, lonely, um, isolated place, without a doubt, mentally. Do you still think it was a, a bad decision? Do you now, with a bit more hindsight? No, not now. I mean, no. God, look okay, at me. I'm living. I'm living. The, I'm living. But I think it's really important for your listeners to understand we make wrong decisions in business and life. Yeah. It happens. We're human. It doesn't mean that your life and your dreams are over. It just means you have to stop for a second and think to yourself, okay, now I've either got to accept the situation and live with it. I've either got to change the situation and walk away or I've got to change the way I look at it. So no matter what we go through, those choices are always at your fingertips. You've always got those three choices to make with whatever repercussions go with that and for me I chose to walk away and I had to live with the consequences of that which was a five-year lockout and never being allowed back into the business that I have founded and I learned a lot about myself during that time but when that time was over I knew that I had to get back in the game because if I didn't I would end up becoming bitter and angry and I didn't want to become that person um, I knew I couldn't go back into Joe Malone and I didn't want to because I would have gone back in time. Yeah. I had no idea where I was where I was going at the time. We you know with Joe Loves, if I'd known the first two years and how tough it would have been, I probably would have uh, bought a vineyard and grown grapes <laughs> um, or, done so- or done something else. But you don't know that and you have to pick up the pieces sometimes. And there's going to be a lot of people through this time that will recognise what I'm saying here. You know, I've yeah. lost who I am. I've lost all of those things. And what do I do? I would say stand still for a bit. You know what? Don't keep moving towards or panic. Just stand still. Stand still and think, okay, this is where I am. I can't change the situation. So what have I got around me that I can pick up? And the thing I knew that I was very good at was creating fragrance. Um, I had a reputation and I had an instinct for business. And I had one of the best business partners in the world, which was Gary. So we had yeah. enough. We had enough. to, And we had a pool of money that the banks were giving no interest on whatsoever. So it's like take our own money and invest in ourselves again. And that's what we did. So that was 2011 when, when Joe Loves was born. Did yeah. you feel the kind of second album syndrome? Did you feel like there was an extra weight on your shoulders because you'd had such a success? <laughs> oh, I've never heard that expression. Um, <laughs> Our second album is normally successful, by the way. Well, I think it's usually that people have a big breakthrough album and then they think, God, how the hell am I going to better that? Better and then they have kind of creative. I think usually in rock and roll, they tend to start taking drugs and things. To try. Right. I, did, I didn't so, do that. No. Okay, good. Let's get that on the record. Yeah. Um, <laughs> never. I've never actually ever taken anything and neither do I want to on okay. the record. That's um, good as well. So my second, well, it was my second album. It was so tough, that second business. And the first, I just couldn't find my pace. I couldn't find, I hadn't created fragrance for five years. So Joe Loves was formed around a kitchen table one night at dinner. My son came up with the name. And um, I thought it was going to be easier than it was. And I was pretty shocked that it wasn't. No department store would really look or touch our product. That I couldn't understand. I, I didn't understand what I'd done that was so wrong starting another business um all i wanted to do was create fragrance and actually if someone had offered me a job at that point i would have gone to work for somebody else all i wanted to do was create again 
that yeah. it wasn't really about building a business in the beginning. So I found that hard and I found it hard that no one realized I wasn't part of that brand anymore. It was almost as though everything that I was was still at Joe Malone, Cream and Black Box. And yeah. I wasn't there. My creativity wasn't there. My spirit wasn't there. So I felt I was losing who I was. So I went through that syndrome as well. And then we launched in Selfridges. We just did a pop-up for Christmas. We had four fragrances. The minute we launched those fragrances, people knew it was me. And that was the golden key for me. Yeah. Because if people didn't know it was me, what was I trying to do? But I yeah. started to get a taste of business again. I started to get that feel of knowing that I could be proactive in a business world, which was really suffering at that time again you know we were having recessional issues and I was encouraging people to build businesses so I had to get back in there I've always been a woman who put your money where your mouth is I, yeah. you know I like people like that and so that's really why I got back in there but it was so tough um those first two years we were literally pumping money into this business and I would look at Gary every week and say how much longer can we go on and he said not much longer Joe. And uh, then we found number 42 Elizabeth Street, the first shop. And that's when the business started to turn a corner. Were you conscious of making it look and feel different to Joe Malone in London? The kind of more modern types and there's this red element. Where does, the, where does the red dot come into things as well? So the beginning, if you look at the beginning of it, it was red boxes. I got it really yeah. wrong, first of all, because I was told that you couldn't look like it, you couldn't be, you can't be Joe, you can't use your name, you can't. I mean, it was that meeting with, with lawyers um, and we went to the head council and he said, these are the things you can't do. This is the one thing you can do. And I cried. I, I walked out of that meeting and I wept because I thought, oh, my God, what did I sell? I, I sold a business. I didn't sell me and my future. But it, in some elements, I had. I had to, yeah. to admit that. So I had to think very differently. But I think the way I look at it is... The two businesses are two very different parts of my life. And when you look at your life, Joe, you know mm. what? I don't know how old you are. How old are you? I'm 30. Okay. God, I can't remember even be, remember being 30. Okay. <laughs> well, if you went back 20 years of your life to when you were yeah. 15. Sorry. So there's the dyslexia again. When you were, well, <laughs> yeah. okay, go back to when you were 15 years old. Okay. 15 years ago. Sorry. You wouldn't have reacted in the same way that you do today. You wouldn't have no. had the same conversations or the same emotion. It's no different in business than creativity because creativity is about evolving as a person and you think differently and you become braver. So the two businesses felt completely different for me. Yeah. But the important thing was, did the consumer see they were different? That was the key. It wasn't about my feelings or emotions. It was about how does the consumer see you? So I kind of lost my way in the, in the first lot of packaging, I think, because I was trying to be so different. And then I realized that I had to come back to who I really was. And my house is completely white. Um, I love just, there's no pictures on the walls. There's just, just white shutters, white floors, white sofas. I love just living in a clean white space. It just makes me calm and happy. The red dot, um, that didn't happen on day one. That took us a few years to sort of evolve and find our packaging. And again, that, you know, that, that's an age old problem when you start out in businesses when you look at um so many brands you'll see that their, their beginning packaging has nothing to do with who you recognize them as today so the red yep. dot came into being i was um sitting at my desk one day and we paid them um, lots of money to 
all kinds of different people to try and find their my Nike swoosh or my Apple. Mm -hmm. And they kept sending things with hearts on and, oh, I just, I couldn't, just couldn't bear it. And I was sitting there with a bottle of nail varnish one afternoon. I was about to go to China and someone had sent me Shanghai red nail varnish. And I was looking at a whole lot of labels that were just black and white and they were very void of emotion. And I took a pencil and I dropped it into the nail varnish and dropped a red dot on every single one of the labels. And I looked and it, it just said, this is who you are. Because because of my dyslexia, I can't sign off products. So I red dot them. And when my team see a red dot, my signature, they know the product's approved or the ribbon's approved or the bag's approved. And the red dot means it can go to the next level. So the wow. red dot was so iconic for us. And people all the way around the world now look for the little Joe loves with the red dot. And that's yeah. how they know it's me. I think it'd be interesting to talk about your um, synesthesia, which is a condition that I think people are getting more aware of, but is still very, very rare. And it sounds incredible, if not slightly exhausting. But can you explain what that, what that means for you to have synesthesia? Yeah, I, I mean, it's, it's natural to me, as I said. And so I must have had it for all my life from what I can gather. And uh, because of having cancer, I've had my brain and my body scanned so many times. And I remember coming out of one brain scan and the doctor I went to see said, your hippocampus is very large. I said, thank you very much. What is that? I had no idea what a hippocampus is. And it's the primeval part of our brain. And he said, yours is very active as well. You're... So that's obviously, and he said, I've noticed that with a lot of creative people, that primeval part of your brain, that sort of, I don't know whether you call it gut instinct or, or whatever it is, is, is overactive. But if you ask me to tell you my left and my right, I can't do that. I struggle telling the time. I struggle. I can't drive. I can't do lots of things that people normally can do because yeah. my brain just doesn't work in that way. But synesthesia, for me, uh, I get color and fragrance connected. So when I see the color red, I smell something. And when I see the color green or blue or yellow, um, my emotions change. So when I'm looking at a business problem, for instance, I have these colored glasses that I bought from the Guggenheim Museum many years ago. And when I'm looking at a fragrance or a package, I'll put on these colored glasses and the color glasses will enable me like, a, like Harry Potter I look yeah. through these colored glasses and I'm able to translate the emotion through color and sense and find a solution. I know that sounds weird, but it, does. it works for me. I'm actually going to do something on Instagram live on that because yeah. to see what I'm doing and how I'm reacting. And actually, it's no different. And my husband said to me, well, it's kind of like Edward de Bono's Six Thinking Hats. And I said, what's that? And he showed me the book and, he, and it's like, oh, my God, I'm doing exactly that with my own interpretation, wow. but I'm doing it visually. Yeah, very interesting anyway. So it, does everything you look at have a, have a smell or an idea of a smell in some degree? So I'm, I'm sitting here right now and I'm looking at my green Pilatus mat, which for me smells of like a palm tree in the sun. Um, I'm looking at a red kimono that I wore last night on the sofa. And that has a, it ha actually I'm smelling sort of like the smell of country roses this morning on that. So it's not always the same color doesn't have the same reaction. Okay. It's how my emotions are, are responding. And then I'm seeing um, a pile of sheets that need to be ironed this afternoon. And I'm smelling um, the Zara Betty Vale with Pampanoose for that one. Wow. So every, yeah, most things have a smell. And does it work for abstract concepts as well? There's a number 14 or, or someone's name, I don't know, 
the name Martin, no. for example. No, they don't, they don't have sense to them. No. Okay, that would be going too far. <laughs> no, that doesn't. It's got to be visual. There's some pieces of music. Music, wow. No, music can do it. So um, soft piece of jazz music will be, for me, feels like liquid cashmere and coffee, like mocha coffee and caramel. Um, mm. What else will do it? Textures sometimes. More colour and music. Music can do it to me. So I could create, if the Royal Philharmonic uh, Orchestra wanted to play a piece of music, I would be able to do, take those notes and create a piece of fragrance for that music might take me a while but i could do it that's genius you should you should definitely do that that's, that's incredible <laughs> well lockdown project you know? <laughs> yeah absolutely i could sit here for, for hours listing things and, and seeing what they smell like to you um but what, i wonder what your kind of favorite scents are in the natural world the ones that are naturally occurring that you don't they don't spring from your own imagination so many so from a perfumer's perspective i love orange blossom i love nearly um Petit Car, uh, the memory, because it was the first note I fell in love with. I'm in love with grapefruit notes and citrus notes. I love fresh, clean mm. cologne notes, which is why probably Pomelo was the first one. And Joe by Joe Loves is, is the one I wear every day. Um, I love vetiver and cedarwood. But I also love the smell of, I love the smell of my dog. I love the smell of her ears, uh, behind her ears, because she's doggy. But I've got a border terrier called Terry. She's just, she never leaves my side and I can smell her wherever she is and she can smell me. She's, uh, I sometimes see her with her nose in the air figuring out where I am and she'll come find me. So I love that. I love the smell of, I love the smell of sunshine and blue skies. I love the smell of white roses. I love the smell of a bottle of Chris Sauvignon being opened in the evening and your first, uh, that has a really strong smell for me that in the evening. Um, I love the smell of beach parakeet. I love the smell of my horse uh, hooligan in Mountain Sky in Montana, the ranch we ride horses. The smell of that horse is earthy. It makes me feel safe. Uh, I love the smell of the herd of elephants who are my family in Tula Tula. The smell of the matriarch as she comes through the bushes with the babies. Hundreds of smells that make me smile. (laughs) And actually, that's what Joe Loves is about. I'm telling you stories of my life through the sense of smell. That's exactly yeah. what I'm doing. Incredible. And obviously, scent is linked for most of us to memories and is very evocative of kind of different yes. periods of our lives. Do you get taken back in full HD, so to speak, to, to different moments when you get a whiff of something walking down the street? <laughs> Every single day. But on my dog walk in the morning, there's a bit where there was a smell and it's the smell of it reminds me of first going to Paris, that very first time walking down the Champs-Élysées creating French lime blossom. And yeah. uh, there's no flower there. There's no, there's something there and I cannot find it. It's like my, my mission. And, and the other day I went and I found this horrible, I could smell it again. And I took a photo of it and it's this horrible bush. And I sent it to my lovely friend in grass. And I said, what is this? And he, and he told me, and he said, it, it has the, t- if you look, it's got like a holly bush, so it's prickly, so don't touch it. But it has this tiny white flower, and that is what you're smelling. And sure enough, it is. So it, I seek every single day to find something. Fragrance calms me. So in the middle of the night, we had, a few nights ago, I woke up, and um, I was had a terrible, terrible panic, anxiety attack. And I couldn't, I just couldn't get my heart to stop pumping. And I was, I don't know why I was. I mean, I didn't feel particularly stressed. And I got up. 
And I thought, how can I calm myself? And I got a bottle of cologne that we keep in the fridge downstairs. And I came up and I just sprayed all the bed sheets and I got back in and immediately it calmed me. So it, wow. the smell of citrus, it just calmed me and I just felt it's going to be okay. You know, it just isn't, it, nothing's going to happen to you. Just And I woke up the next morning and perfectly okay. So fragrance is, is more to me than the sense of smell. Yeah, I've got to try that. Some of the fragrances you have and the products you've developed with Joe Loves are particularly innovative. You've got a wonderful thing called a fragrance paintbrush, which I've never heard of before. What does the fragrance paintbrush do? That was my Willy Wonka golden ticket, the paintbrush. Okay. So Gary had said to me, um, he'd sent me a couple of tasks. He said, I'd love a patented product once every three years and once in your life, can you please change the way the whole world? And is, is it paradigm shift? Yeah. Paradigm shift? Where, where so. people literally behavior. So that's that's actually what we're living through at the moment, a paradigm shift where the whole world is changing their behavior. But he wanted me to do that in our industry. So um, I delivered the shop candle, which was patented, first candle, ever, center candle ever to be patented, um, and the paintbrush. And I came up with an idea that instead of spraying, I was going to get world to paint their bodies with fragrant art. And everybody looked at me including our marketing person at the time and just said it's gimmicky no one will ever do it uh and i looked at them all and said i, I believe in this and i'm going to do it and i was the only one gary and i picked up the project found some money to invest and do the first prototype and and there you go the paintbrush then brought to my door china as in the country not as in yeah. a, a product and knocking on our door we think this is the most creative thing we've ever seen then Zara came to the door from the paintbrush and said, we think it's the most amazing thing. We work together and we are changing our industry. So sometimes you're the only person that believes in a product. You have to run with it. And sometimes it's a very lonely road for a while. Keep on running yeah. because uh, if you believe in it with integrity and passion, you'll find a way. So are there other paintbrushes that it's big on the horizon? Are there other products that are going to be innovative in that way? Well, the minute you do something that's different, everybody follows suit. And, and can I just say, by the way, when people copy each other, it's just creative laziness. You know what? Get a grip. Go, go and find your own idea. Why do you have to hijack mine? Um, you know, go and, and invest in creativity in yourselves and you'll find that you don't need to copy me because you'll come up with great ideas. But And we all know, know who I'm talking about there, right the way across the market. And it's like, go and do it yourself. Um, but that's part and parcel of life. When you come up with an idea that changes the world, then people copy you. Uh, yeah. You can't get upset by it. You just have to keep moving towards uh, your goals and you have to keep your mind focused on the bigger landscape. And that's always what I choose to do instead of I might be angry for a second and then I, I move on. But yeah, no, this year you'll see our Christmas this year is probably the best one in 35 years I have ever. I'm working with one of the most creative teams and i am so proud of what i know christmas is a long way away and we shouldn't have mentioned the c word but there you go i've done it dropped it um but it is you'll see that we have just brought creativity you, you'll actually see lockdown in us in a creative form because oh my goodness have we done some amazing things and uh we've got a couple of launches coming up with a new concept in the paintbrush and you'll love them incredible so I want, I want to ask you now about your kind of advice to entrepreneurs and young people, because I know one of the things you're very passionate about is how we prepare young people for entrepreneurship and how maybe the traditional academic route 
doesn't fit a lot of young yeah. people, especially not now. Do you think the way that we train and teach people in this country needs a, a big update? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, with capital letters. So okay. I believe we should be teaching entrepreneurialism within the national curriculum. And last year I started to talk about that and it was made very clear to me that entrepreneurialism was not part of the national curriculum in certain circles. Well, I'm telling you right now, and those people that said that to me in that meeting, I want you to look me in the eyes right now and tell me that that's not useful right now because it is. Because yeah. if we had done that, we would have a generation within five years if it was part of the national curriculum. And you, if you think about it, entrepreneurialism is all about mathematics. You have to work out the price of something. You have it, chemistry, biology, art. You have to do the packaging. You have to do the PRing is storytelling, so it's English. And kind of, you know, logistical kind of things. And what this does is it will bring the very best of every child to the table because every child will have a jewel about them. They will have something that they are really, really good at that they can bring to the party and create that. And you imagine if that every single child across our country knew how to build something. You yeah. imagine where we would be right now. And within five years, we could have a generation of young people that every single child, no matter what their academic ability, no matter if they went to university, no matter what, they would have the understanding of how to build something and create it. And if they didn't fit into the mold, like I didn't, you still can be the very best of something, uh, of who you are in your life and whatever you have. So I feel, I feel we let our young people down tremendously. And which is why when, when we started this conversation, I, I spoke about the young people with their A-levels at this moment. This is such a tough time for them. And yeah. as entrepreneurs, we really do need to rally and say, we will help open doors for you. But because this particular, this year and the next year, you know what, they've had a lot taken from them. We, we really do as businesses have to try and give something back and not let them feel that their opportunity is gone. Yeah. Do you meet a lot of young people now? And do you, what, what I mean? <laughs> I don't meet anyone at the moment. Cause I'm no, 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 no. <laughs> but what kind of questions do they ask you when they ask you for advice? What sort of advice do you find yourself giving? Oh, do you know something? Um, I did an Instagram live last night uh, for Joe Loves and we had some questions. And there was this one, it brought tears to my eyes this morning when I saw the comments. And, mm. uh, you know, we did a 30 minute Instagram and I'm going to do them more often because I really love doing them. And, it, and it's a bit like, doing the podcast with you right now, you know, you just have a lot of questions, but there were such heart-rending questions. There was one, there was a young woman that was starting a scented candle company. Could I help her? Could I give her some advice? Um, and then I spoke about, you know, Joe Loves and how I create ingredients and business. And then we've seen the comments this morning and there's a couple from, well, there's more than a couple, there's hundreds of them, of a young woman saying, I'm at university doing my last degree and I was really struggling. And you've really helped me understand business um, tonight. I gave them a, a little compass, uh, a five-eye compass to help them through understand how you take your consumer from one end to the other. And a lot of people were building their businesses for the first time. And I was able to, to, to bring it much more down to basics. But exactly what I'm teaching, what, I, what I'm showing, a five-year-old could understand it. Yeah. An 18-year-old could understand it. You know, it, it depends how you... How you deliver that piece of understanding and wisdom and knowledge or however you and i think i have a very down-to-earth way of delivering something that 
that everyone is able to take something from. So they were, you know, kind of really just, I had tears in my eyes reading them, thinking I'm so glad I made a difference. And if it was just one person every week I made a difference for, if yeah. everyone in this country made a difference to one life, um, what, a, what an amazing world that we would be living in. Absolutely. Wholeheartedly, we absolutely have to have entrepreneurism taught within schools. It's not an after-school club. It's not any of those things. We absolutely need to be teaching that and seeing our young people coming out equipped. And, uh, and, and I, I promise you, you would see crime go down and we would see mental health go down. Why? Because people have a sense of value and they don't feel powerless to, to be able to do anything about, you know, uh, change their lives. Um, we wouldn't eradicate these, those two things, but we would see an absolute, um, we would see something positive coming out of a very negative situation. I quite agree. I think you're absolutely right. And it's, yeah, more compelling now than ever, that, that, that argument. This is a time where kind of innovation is, is needed. You know something, creativity doesn't belong to anyone. You don't have to go to university to be creative. Every person in this world was born to be creative. You were born with creativity. And that account that holds your creativity, no one can steal from you, no one can take it. But it will yeah. never, ever add in value in your life unless you use it. Incredible. Otherwise, it just stays there and does nothing. So it's, it's like every, everybody is qualified to be creative. And, um, you know, one of your questions was about, you know, what is what is my our family or our, our mantra at this moment in time and it's you have the advantage of time you have the opportunity to invest in the currency of creativity which is yours by the way and you have the motivation to build for the future that is my wish that people will um pick that up brilliant before you go joe i want to ask you the kind of quick fire questions that we are i love you. these by the way okay good i'm glad you've seen them. i really love them <laughs> Um, so the first one, and I don't know if you'll be able to answer this because I don't think there's anything that could work for you, but what do you think you'd be doing if you weren't making fragrances? I'd be working in conservation okay. with, because um, I, I have an elephant family, as I said, in South Africa. Uh, so I'd be working with animals. I'd be working with elephants, uh, dogs, uh, horses, but I'd be probably working in conservation somewhere. Okay. What's your worst habit? Um, I'm obsessed with tidiness. So I can't look at something if the sheets aren't all piled up. And I'm obsessed by lists. It drives everyone mad, I'm afraid. But it's the discipline. Yeah, I don't think that's a bad habit. I think that's a pretty good one. But other people might disagree. <laughs> Not if you're living with someone that's untidy and couldn't care less whether a list. I said, have you checked that off your list yet? And he goes, oh, for goodness sake, Joe, put that down. So that is a but yeah. And what's the most impressive thing you can cook? What's the Joe Malone special? Ooh, uh, I love cooking. I really love it. I think um, my, my son uh, doesn't eat meat. So I think I do a really good seared charcoal lemon salmon um, with tarragon potatoes and lots and lots of fresh vegetables. What, what are you most proud of so far? What's the single thing you're most proud of in your career? That I've survived. That I'm still telling, I'm still relevant. I'm still telling my story I'm still doing what I believe to be right that I, and that I'm that I'm no quitter so I think I'm most proud um and I'm most proud of the people whose lives I've changed and have gone on to do great things that makes me very proud on the other side of things what's your biggest failure do you think have you ever had any kind of fragrances that that on paper you thought would be brilliant then when they were made they were they didn't quite work any fragrance plots 
oh, about a couple of hundred thousand. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's that's part and parcel. Um, I don't really have regrets. I've got to be honest. I don't. I think fighting cancer um, and having my, you know, I'm not even meant to be here right now. I was given, you know, months to live. So I don't have regrets. Um, failures, I think, are part of success. So uh, I don't like failing, but I'm not frightened of failure because it often takes you. I think, I think the biggest thing though in my life that I probably trusted the wrong people at the right time, and I haven't trusted some of the right people in the wrong time. So I, that I think I would um, is is something that I wish I could change. Yeah, and if you could learn one new skill now, what would it be? I'd love to learn to swim. I can't swim. Really. That's pretty difficult in lockdown London. It is a bit, yeah. <laughs> um, and I don't have a swimming pool, uh, and I don't have a paddling pool. So yeah, I'd love. I'm going to learn to swim. That's. I'm determined to do that when this is over. Amazing. What was the last piece of advice you gave to someone? It was uh, exactly what I shared with you last night um, on uh, on our Instagram uh, yeah. live platform. So uh, you know, teaching about business, but that that whole thing about um, you know the advantage of time, that opportunity and motivation. That would that really is resonating with me at the minute, and um, so that was the last piece of advice I gave. Incredible. What, which phrase would you like to banish from the earth? Um, what do I write down? Hold on. Uh, it's not really a phrase that I'd like to. Ban- I'd like to banish people who think they're owed something the whole time, and that it's everybody else's responsibility to make their business work or their life work, and it's. You know, I get really. I'd love, I'd love those kind of people to go and live on their own island. And um, you know, I think what I'd say is, it's on your plate, mate. You eat it. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. And if you could stick to one age forever, what do you think it would be, and why? I love the the last two years before my son went to university. That was a really, um, although we had A levels and O levels, but it was a really. Our house was full of teenagers the whole time and <laughs> parties, and I loved that. But uh, do you know what? I'm really happy with – I live in the now, and what happened yesterday, I, we turn the page, and what happens tomorrow is always an adventure. So I'm really happy. I like to live in the now. Um, yes, even, even though it is what it is, yeah. I still think this, this moment in time is, is the moment that I can change, and so I'm happy to be here. What have you done recently for the first time? Uh, wore a face mask going out for a walk. That is bizarre for me. Yeah. So, but I live with um, a very high risk category. My husband has lung disease. So we've been in lockdown for two weeks longer than anyone else. Oh, wow. Uh, okay. But going out, uh, and, and we've had to change everything about our family dynamic because of him. And we love him and we'll protect him and we'll do whatever we have to do. But going out wearing a face mask is bizarre. But I don't know why everyone else is not doing it. I've got, I mean, I, I, I've got ones that I wash. And that we come in, we take them off, it goes straight into the boil wash, and I put them on again. So they're not PPE. I don't believe mm. that anybody needs that. But we should all be wearing face masks. It's ridiculous. Um, you know, we protect each other. And by that, it, it, you know, I find um, wearing a face mask, I've never done that before. But yeah. I shall be doing it for a long time to come. And I think yeah. everybody else should be as well. I think we probably will. Um, what, apart from time, what would make the biggest difference to your quality of life? Um, to see my husband's condition completely cured. And it can't be. Uh, and seeing him 
you know, struggle every day to, he has to do exercises to help him breathe. Mm -hmm. And he's one of the most amazing, incredible, kind, uh, funny, wonderful, he, he, he is an incredible man. And um, to see him well, and so that, you know, whenever we travel, we have to travel with zip things that go on the mattress. Uh, he, he really does, um, he fights for every single minute of his life. And to see his condition completely cured would be make me the happiest in the world. Amazing. What's your most treasured possession? My family, but they're not really a possession. No. Um, my, <laughs> my son and my husband and my dog. Uh, but I have a star, a Tiffany star that my husband bought me many years ago. And I never take it off. I've always got it on. And I, that is my treasured possession. Do, I wonder if you've got any um, kind of early prototypes of the first fragrances you ever made. Do you still have any of those? Are they in a museum somewhere, probably? In my head. I could produce some of those, yeah. Okay. Um, but uh, obviously all the, all the first ones now belong to Lauder, so yeah. um, I wouldn't step near that one. Okay, probably wise. And is there a book that's influenced you more than any other? Yes, it's called Elephant in My Kitchen, um, and it's the story of a conservation project in South Africa called Tula Tula. And it changed us as a family. They now are our family conservation project. We spoke to them last night. Um, we speak to them regularly. And the elephants are a, a herd of elephants that uh, started at nine rogue elephants. And they're now 29 living very happily in a conservation project in um, South Africa. Brilliant. What's your personal motto? It's get S for man to discover new oceans. He must first have the courage to lose sight of the shore. Very good. It's all about courage, really, isn't it? And um, and knowing that kind of success is often uncomfortable. I was talking to, to Martin about that just before. It's grit. And this is kind of an uncomfortable time, but that's it. It's grit. And you know what? Nothing is secure. And get ready for, for change because it's here to stay. And yeah. uh, this is going to be a part, a part of our evolving. But you know what? We'll be, we're going to be better for this. We, we have to have that mindset. Otherwise, um, otherwise where are we going to go? Finally, what is your idea of happiness? Um, my family and my ideas of happiness, being loved and accepted for who I am and fulfilling, be, being the very best that I can be. Incredible. Thank you so much, Jo. There's, there's probably no better note to end on. <laughs> I've really loved um, chatting to you. There were really great questions and, and thank you so much. And when, this, when this is all over, let's have a cocktail. That sounds like a good idea. We'll celebrate. <laughs> Well, if you enjoyed that episode of the Gentleman's Journal podcast, you'll almost certainly love the Gentleman's Journal magazine, the world's finest dispatch from the front line of luxury, entrepreneurship and style. In fact, lucky podcast listeners like you now get 20% off our annual subscription. Just enter the code POD20 at thegentlemansjournal.com to find out more.